Todo el mundo. But that was really. 
And so they really wanted to play it, even though they were really going to just call it quits. They were just going to end the band. And so I learned the songs. I mean, I was already a fan of surf music, which I'll talk about later. But and uh, I learned the songs, you know, I, I was familiar with the surf beat. I, um, fl- they flew me up. The band actually flew me up to San Francisco. We played to this very stuffy San Francisco crowd, you know, imagine <laughs> like, you know, black turtlenecks and no clapping and dour faces. I mean, I love oh, San Francisco, but it was a rough crowd for my first show, but I was happy as a clam. I was just so happy to be playing with these women and and it was at bimbo's uh, i think that was that place called bimbo's three six nine or something it's a uh-huh. it's a club in san francisco that used to have a mermaid in a, like a live mermaid in a tank oh wow um, but anyway so we played the show and uh they asked me to join the band i drove back down to la with pam pamita neptuna and we became you know, forever friends. And um, I joined the band, they wanted to continue. And, you know, so that was where the love started. I mean, I already loved the Neptunas, but it became, it came back, like it started to be, you know, a two way street in that, in that experience. And I joined the band and I've never left. Oh, wow. So did you try to keep your other band going for a while or was it just, you know, well, we didn't really continue for very long because my sister was the front person for that band and she um, had finished up her undergraduate work and was uh, about to start law school. So she really didn't want to continue playing music because it was too much for a first year law student. So the band was really kind of wrapping up. I believe we played a few shows, you know, where I like did the double bill and I played in both bands, but mm-hmm. it wrapped up pretty quickly. Like that punk rock band, we did a 30 day with summertime. We did a 30 day us tour van tour, you know, really gritty, just three, three women. And I remember coming back in the next day playing one of my very first shows with the Neptunas it was probably the first show in LA, but I could be wrong, but in the parking lot at go boy records in Redondo beach. So it was like from the punk rock tour the next day to surf music, you know, mm-hmm. cause go boy records had like a really great collection of surf records. Um, that record store is no longer there, but was there for years and they had, um, you know, a great robust collection of surf vinyl, you know? So it was a great place to play with the Neptunas. But yeah, that band kind of sunsetted as my Neptunas sun was rising. Wow, that's really perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I, you know, as we mentioned, you are obviously a big punk fan. And um, in the course of making the documentary about the ventures, I mean, I always knew, but I learned um, more about the reasons how punk and surf complement one another and sort of influence one another. Um, so the Neptunas were already surf music at the time. So can you talk a little bit, though, about the transition? What are the different styles in drumming? Oh, yeah, for me. Well, <clears throat> punk rock, I, I will say, you know, when it, especially particularly about the Ventures, you know, it was talked about a lot in your documentary, 
and I would agree that your dad, Don Wilson's rhythm guitar playing was very percussive. Mm-hmm. And there was also, um, when it comes to the ventures, which by the way, we'll talk more about surf music and my love for surf music, which actually predated my love for punk rock. And I loved the ventures. They were one of my first musical loves, but the way that, um, also the way that you, you know, the ventures went about creating their career and carving out their career was really along the lines of how punk rock was done later. You know, it's, there was quite a bit of doing it yourself and your grandma was a big force behind the ventures. And so in that way, it reminded me a lot of punk rock, the drumming, um, you know, surf drumming, it has a wide spectrum. It can be very complex. It can even be sort of prog rocky. My my way of drumming is very simplistic. So it suited the surf beat. And for me, being in a trio, I can't, I don't want to over, I don't want to play over the guitar leads, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't, it, it was important for me to keep it kind of simple. So my, the, the way I played surf music was a, a lot less complex and my and also the punk rock band that I was in was very hooky and poppy and had surf influences so for me personally there is a percussive nature in in some of the guitar playing in um surf music there's also some punk rock bands <clears throat> that I was already into you know back then that were were very influenced by surf music. One of them being Agent Orange, that you know we ended up for years and years and years, and still do cover the Agent Orange song Bloodstains. So there's there is a marriage between surf and punk rock, um, not just for me personally. There is a personal one for me, but also I think musically and culturally, just kind of the evolution of music, it kind of fit. There's. You know, people think of surf music as being so um, kind of mainstream and, you know. Um, yeah, lightweight. Lightweight, but it's really, actually, it it became mainstream over time. But, you know, it it was invented by people who were making making it up as it was happening, you know. And, you know, so I don't know. I don't think that surf music is necessarily... Um, all polished, all pop, all the time. I think there's definitely an edge to it. And there's no band in the world that plays any type of rock music that isn't tough and rough if they go on the road. The road, <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're singing beautiful harmonies, you know, doesn't matter if you're boys or if you're girls, when you're on the road, it's no joke. And that's always, the road is always punk rock to me, so. You know, when I think of drummers in terms of their personalities, it's kind of either all out gonzo like Keith Moon or laid back and keeping the beat like Charlie Watts with the Rolling Stones. Um, And, you know, you already talked about your drumming style a bit, your personality uh, in the band. Um, Who are some of your own influences? I think the greatest influence on me, I mean, I love Keith Moon. And the thing that I took away from um, from Keith Moon was just, you know, this unbridled um energy and you know i'm a lot less bombastic playing in the neptunas than a keith moon than keith moon would have been 
but I am kind of a little bombastic for surf music. But um, the drummer that most influenced me, I would have, I would probably say, was Gina Shock from the Go Go's. Mostly just because, I mean, a the band was all female, and I was in all female bands, you know. So mm -hmm. in the beginning, I've played with men over time, but you know, she had a big influence on me because also that band was a band that I got to see when I was young and when I was forming my ideas about maybe what I could do. And, and Gina Shock is a woman and an extremely capable female drummer and played mu music with hooks and even sometimes has a surf sound. That band, I mean, they, the Go-Go's covered a surf song or maybe it was an original. I can't remember. It's um, Surfing and Spying. Is that a cover? Is it Ventures? Uh, actually, no, the Ventures covered it. They, yeah, that's right. It was kind of a compliment and then a return compliment because the Go-Go's wrote Surfing and Spying in that's homage right. to the Ventures and then the Ventures covered it and they all performed it on stage live one time. And it was, yeah, it was a really great, kind of a joyous time for um, punk music, like you say, in the 80s, especially the early 80s, where it was um, a lot of very female driven. And then uh, the Go-Go's kind of parlayed their punk street smarts into a pop you know uh yes commercial uh sound but yes. they never really lost that edge yes so that was probably the the in you know even though i love lots of drummers i love lots of male drummers i would say gina shock probably is the most personal influence for me and i actually wrote about it in there's a book coming out called forbidden beat and the author is S.W. Loudon, and it's coming, I think, in February. It's a collection of essays and, and different writings that drummers have written about drummers that influenced them. And I wrote about Gina in that book. So the deeper the deeper story can be, you know, about that particular influence can be read in that book. But, um, you know, and I'm really excited to read all the stories because it's all drummers and I was super excited too to be included because the cover art is um, Brian Walsby, who does a lot of really great cover art. So, oh, nice. but, but I talked a lot about, I mean, I wrote a whole, you know, 1500 word essay about my, about Gina and oh, her influence. Definitely and, look for that. Yeah. And I, and I got to see them and they played at my high school. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of reasons why that particular thing happened, but it was, it was really, I have a, I love hooks and pop. I love pop music, which is why surf music spoke to me so early, you know, and, uh, and the Go-Go's are, you know, became a pop band, like we said, so. Yeah, well, let's listen to one of your more catchy tunes with the Neptunas. This is one of yes. my favorites, Billy the Squid's Water Pistol.
unlike some indie artists, uh, you have a label backing you, Altered State of Reverb. Um, but still, it really is a DIY world now for artists, um, musical artists included from conception to market. Do you feel it's better that way or does having to focus on the minutia sometimes take away from the creative aspect? Well, I definitely think it's, um, I've never done anything other than DIY, although I've been on indie labels. Um, they were, we also had to do a lot of things ourselves. Like the labels were great and supportive and helpful as is Altered State of Reverb, but there's a lot of work that you still have to do yourself. But I really appreciate the label we are on now because he does a ton of the work. Um, and John, Long Gone John always did work really, really hard for the bands on his label too. But I have never known anything other than doing it yourself, you know? And, the first label I was on, Theologian Records, in my punk rock band, and you know that was out of Hermosa Beach. They booked it. They 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 booked the this thirty day tour for us along with my front person, which was my sister. Like the band and the label worked together to book the tour. So for me, I don't really know any other way. I think it would. It's probably better. I mean, it's. I don't hear very many stories of bands who do it themselves or work with an indie label who are like disturbed by how it turned out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because there's, there's so much more of a collaboration between the band and, and it's, it's like everyone wants that lease break even, but it's clearly not about money. So it's, you know, it's a whole different um, way to do, it's a different business model for making, for putting out music, you know? And it's also good because like, I mean, this is probably true of major labels too, but when you choose a label or a label chooses you, you know, indie label, there's a, there's um, a more focused audience. Labels are often focused on a certain type of music because it's usually one guy or gal who owns the label and it's their passion, you know, so Altered State of Reverb, that label is all surf music mm -hmm. and because it's his it's josh graham's love he loves surf music so it makes sense to do that because you know i'm sure majors have like their genres but we're working directly with the person whose passion it is and working with josh has been amazing because he just he was just so happy to have us on his label he was just so excited i reached out to him that's how it happened. We already had the record done, which we can talk about, you know, mm -hmm. and Dan and Danny had produced it for us. And, you know, we already had the record done. We just needed somebody to help us with the heavy lifting. Exactly what you asked about. Like we needed somebody who could do a lot of the work that we really just weren't able to do with marketing and, and, uh, Josh is, um, the label owner at Altered State of Reverb is a very multimedia kind of guy. It's what he does for a living. So he's really been great at creating art, you know, to market the record. And he was, he's just so passionate, you know, about it. And we, we first put out the CD and then we very recently put out the vinyl, which he, we were all super passionate and, and excited about because that that's like a great piece of art right there. Oh yeah. The the vinyl is this beautiful 
like seafoam, like bluish color. And, and of course you get the, the cover art, which we were super proud of. Stephanie Buscema did the, the cover art and she's a great, she's a great artist who has her, her, like she, she makes art that is like on, um, I wish I could articulate this better, but like fabric. So there's like okay, so textiles as well as um, yes, yeah, yes. wow. And it has she has like such a keen eye for retro style and the color schemes, and so she did characterization of the three of us playing. Um, it's just I'm just I just love that everything about that that record, Mermaid Go Go. I love I love our label, and you know obviously I love my bandmates, but the the finished product of the vinyl is probably the thing I'm most proud of about that. I mean, yeah, the music, the music is mind blowing for me. <laughs> but right. like well, the, I mean, that's part of the marketing too, is to have a great image like you do on Mermaid A Go Go. I mean, it's yes. the surf sound of the, you know, the sixties is the nostalgic sweet spot for surf music. And then there's that earlier mid-century modern art angle to it. Um, well, remind me of the artist's name and, um, you know, how did you connect with her initially anyway? Yeah, her name is Stephanie Buscema and her website, like, I think, she, her, I know she's on all the socials because it's worth it to check out her art just because she's so great and she's a lovely person. She lives in New York um, and it's, I think um, the website is... I think it's Kitchy Witch. Oh, okay. Yes, I think you're right. I do remember I looked her up when I saw your yeah. album art for the first time. Yeah, super talented. And yeah. uh, speaking of talented, uh, you mentioned Danny earlier, and that is Danny Amos of Most Straight Jackets, a.k.a. Daddy O'Grande. And he produced your record. Um, how did you all connect with him in the first place? And what did he bring to the table as the producer? So we. You know, we've been around for a little while, the, the Neptunas. So when we, in the mid nineties, when we were a little bit of a newer band, we played with Los Street Jackets from time to time. And in fact, toured with them, did a Southern States tour um, back in the mid nineties. And he's just always been, the Los Street Jackets are friends of ours. And Danny's always been a friend of ours. and <clears throat> we've spent time with him and so initially we met by playing shows with them and one of my favorite shows ever was a show we played in santa cruz california with low street jackets at a place called moe's alley and the place still exists and i think they also have like jazz bands there and stuff but it was Santa Cruz is such a great place because the energy was, the, the place was packed and the energy was beautiful. And, and it was beach town, right? Yes. And everybody was just having such a great time. And, you know, when promoters create and can, can create an environment, right? So in this show, they, this club that did it the right way, no cover charge. And then everyone's wants to be there because they're not they feel like they're not paying for anything and then they just spend all their money on drinks and <laughs> you know you can pay the yeah. bands a percentage of the bar it's exactly. the best way to do it and they did that there so everybody was so happy and it's one of my favorite experiences i know we're going to talk about danny but this is reminds me of danny because it happened while 
at a show we played with them. There was someone in the crowd who kept yelling. There was like a rockabilly guy, super funny guy, but kept yelling for Wipeout. He wanted to hear Wipeout <laughs> while we were playing. And I was like, yeah, I can't really play Wipeout. <clears throat> like, I mean, I could probably, you know, I'm sure I could study it and learn it. But we did not. The Neptune is generally play what we have rehearsed. <laughs> Yeah, so, that's probably a good policy. <laughs> so he, but he was unrelenting. So I eventually was like happily got up, walked over to him in the crowd, handed him the sticks and the girls pulled it off and he played drums. Apparently he was a drummer. Oh, wow. So, well, that's was good. hilarious. Good but so that's, I, and I also remember playing that show because it was the first time I'd heard Los Straight Jackets play. Um, it's a song by the shadows called the rise and fall of flingle blunt which i thought was a low street jacket song what did i know mm. and um i fell in love with that song and it was danny who told me like yeah we didn't write that song <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a great song and um anyway but danny so we have this whole ex this friendship with danny and we had been to the neptunus had gone to europe at many years prior to, to this point so like we, we here's what happened we knew danny for a long time we had gone on tour with the breeders in 2014 and we were we had so much fun getting back together as band you know and playing these shows with the breeders and we kept playing shows when we got back to la and then we want we wanted more you know where else can we go well we went to europe well, Europe might be a little hard right now. We don't have a new record to, 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 you know, tour on or anything. And I thought, well, Danny lives in Mexico. Mexico's not that far away. Let's talk to Danny and see if, you know, he has some suggestions about places to play. We talked to Danny and he was able to get us on this bill of this wonderful festival in Mexico City called the Wildo Fest. Nice. We ended up going down to Mexico playing the Wildo Fest, the Sonics headlines, Manor Astro Man played, the Phantom Surfers played. It was just such a great experience. And, and also Satan's Pilgrims. So like, it was so much fun and uh, such a mind-blowing experience. And the crowd just loved it. Danny came out on stage and played the last two songs with us, which actually one of which was the Lullaby of the Leaves. So nice. we, um, after that show, Danny said, you know, they love you here. I would love to produce a record for you. You, you know, come back down here into the studio that, and the guys that Danny works with were so nice. So we came back to LA, we wrote the record within six months. We went back down in, uh, down to, um, this all happened in 2017. We went back down to Mexico city in November of 2017 and we recorded with Danny, the songs we had written. So we were, you know, had done that process back and forth. We were sending him songs. He was giving us notes. Then we came down and, and um, we played a few shows while we were down there and we recorded the record. So it was a really amazing experience. Danny is an amazing person. Like he just worked so hard for us to make this wonderful record. You know, he's definitely the fourth Neptuna because- <laughs> yes. You know, he his art is all over that record. And 
I am, I couldn't be more proud and I couldn't love Danny more. And really that whole record was just an expression of love between the ba- between us as bandmates, our, you know, collective love for surf music, our love for Danny and what Danny gave to us, you know, was loving. And it was just such a positive experience. I'm not surprised that listening to that record, it feels like that. It feels super positive. And we, we kind of sat on it for a while because I was looking for the right record label. And it was perfect timing because when I found Altered State of Reverb was the timing ended up being perfect because by the time we were ready to release the record, we were in a, you know, in a pandemic and people were, it was like people were feeling sad and lonely and it was a bit of a dark time. So I was so happy to put out this very positive, beautiful music when it was a little, you know, like a rough time because as musicians and as artists, and I'm sure for you, you know, what you create, we want to have a positive impact for people, especially people who need it the most, right? So, yeah, I mean, the record really does, um, you know, it does make you feel good. It makes you want to dance and sing along. Um, and that's Mermaid A Go Go for those who want yes. to get out. Um, yes. Do you have a next record planned? Or yeah, I don't. We really haven't done much much um, talking about the future yet, but we still haven't had a chance to play on that record a lot we were playing those songs live but we hadn't released the record so i'm really looking forward to for starters having shows to play and i really want to go back and um play you know hopefully they bring back that festival the wild o fest yeah well i mean it's um definitely the kind of record that is evergreen Yes. Yeah. Um, well, uh, before I let you go, um, this is the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. So, of course, I have to ask you, what is your rock and roll nightmare? Well, okay. I have the scariest thing, rock and roll thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> okay. So we went to Belgium and Holland. We toured in Europe in the mid to late 90s. And one of the spots on the itinerary was in Antwerp, Belgium, in the prison in Antwerp. Hmm. And it's an interesting prison. It's star-shaped. And uh, at the time, they were very excited about bringing live music into the prison because they felt, you know, it's kind of a European sensitivity to or awareness about what art about how art can impact people. And that concept was bringing, you know, music, live music to inside the prison, you know, would have a positive impact on inmates, right? I mean, it's undeniable music is a salve. So we show up for the gig and there's like a green room and, you know, in the, it's, you're just basically playing in the auditorium. There's a stage, but there's, I mean, may I remind you, there are no weapons inside of prisons. The guards don't have firearms, I should say. So unlike in the United States, where I think the the guards are all armed, that's not the way it was. So there were men and women in the prison. When we arrive, we go to the green room. The green room is, it's awesome because it's 
the walls are covered with set lists and promo shots of bands who had played there before. Oh, wow. You know, so we put our promo picture, our set list up in there. And I saw people, bands of people I knew that had played there. And um, so at that time in the mid nineties, there's anyone who went through Belgium played in that Antwerp prison. So we, um, we went out on stage and played the scariest set of my life. I, I've never been so scared. Just not because all criminals are scary, but they kind of built it up. Like, so, you know, the warden gave us a tour of the prison. And um, so I, by the way, this prison was built in 1859. Mm. So it was um, really creepy. You know, there's a lot of, it's been renovated, you know, quite a bit since we were there, but it was definitely scary. And they took us to like, you know, several of the cells and one of the cells that has, had not been renovated probably since 1859 and told us like some scary stories about the prison just in general, you know, and told us that there are several murderers incarcerated there at the time, you know, and they pointed out a woman. And they said, watch out for her. Like they really built it up. Oh, wow. It was so scary. <laughs> and so, you know, it was pretty scary. So we take the stage and, you know, there were, you know, the woman, by the way, they were like this, there's this Albanian woman and she's really gnarly. They didn't tell us her crime, but like, I was terrified of this woman. They pointed her out in the crowd. So we knew exactly who she was. Anyway, we play and apparently there is one universal word because there are people who spoke many different languages that were incarcerated, you know, there were inmates there, but there is a universal word that got shouted our entire set, which you just kind of had to not be offended, but it was a euphemism for a woman's physical anatomy. Okay. So I don't want to be crude on your podcast, <laughs> but it was the only word that was shouted over and over again. Like everything else was just like a jumbled Dutch or French or Albanian or, you know, but uh -huh. the, the English word that, you know, slang word that was, seems to be used by everybody got shouted a lot. It was very scary. Um, and the guy who did the sound, they told us was a convicted murderer. And then after the set, you know, they had given us the tour already. Then after we played the set, we sat down and had a dinner prepared by inmates. And we sat down and had dinner with the warden. And oh. it was such an interesting experience, but <laughs> very I scary. Have access to poison or something. It's like, yeah, I know, like this is yeah, for the warden. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, this is for the warden, but you accidentally switch plates. But, <laughs> exactly. I oh mean, it was scary because the backdrop of that prison was very different than American prisons that you see in TV shows. It's very, you know, everything's brick. Everything seems wet. You know, it's yeah. super yeah. creepy. And, you know, um, and you know that, you know, there, there were certainly people in that prison that have had a lapse of judgment. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't that we you were behind plexiglass or anything, were you? No, we were literally on a raised stage that was like maybe, you know, it was an auditorium. Like imagine when you're a school child, you know, yeah. you play in these auditoriums. It was uh -huh. like that. Hmm. So it's like it's raised by a few feet, but 
you know, you're pretty much, you're pretty much exposed to the crowd. But mm. I will say for as scary as it was, it did not turn out to be anything but a great experience. They told us not to take photographs, but we did. So like, <laughs> I have a box of photos from that tour and there's pictures of like the sound guy, the, the murderer sound guy. And, you know, I took some pictures, but you know, it was, that whole experience was pregnant with terror, right? Yeah. Because you just don't know what's going to happen. So uh -huh. it was pretty scary, though not a scary ending. Um, great ending, but you know. Yeah, well, it kind of gives a new meaning to killer set. <laughs> yes. And it also, does. like, you know, I was, it, it makes you really appreciate Johnny Cash and like, all <laughs> right. A Fugazi, who's a punk band, you know, mm -hmm. played in a prison. There's like, you know, a, a list of maybe 10 great, that my favorite, my absolute favorite prison performance, although it was a mental, mental institution, but it's the cramps at that Napa state institution. Yes. If anyone's never seen that video, watch that video because it's on YouTube. The cramps live at Napa state mental institution or something that's what it felt like oh wow yeah in that I, prison I in Belgium. That. <laughs> that's great um so well thank you so much for your yes. your rock and roll nightmare um so where can people find you online presumably not prisoners but people that want to <laughs> yes. your music well, uh, well <laughs> you know i read recently read about that prison in belgium and they're like oh there was a whole movement to like give them access to the internet oh, and wow. give them, you know, give them, which is consistent with in the nineties, bringing live music in. So even if you're in, in that prison in Belgium and Antwerp, and you're welcome to go find us. Um, the best place to probably go is alteredstateofreverb.com. Um, our record label has t-shirts, music, all our stuff. We have a website that's just neptunas.com and i personally am on social media it's probably better to just find go to laura bethita neptuna on instagram or on facebook we have a facebook page but i i'm more active as on on my own page mm -hmm. you know yeah all right um, well highly recommended mermaid a go-go and thanks again laura thank you so much stacy as always, before I close the show, I'm going to share a paragraph from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is an excerpt from Do You Fear Like We Do, the 1970s fiction edition. The story is While My Guitar Gently Reeks, and it is by yours truly. When Leif arrived at the studio, it was almost empty, but he could hear the guitarist rehearsing in the back. He dutifully signed in at the deserted front desk, then made his way to Studio B. He was there to lay down a solo, so it was just Leif and the two founders of the band, Biggie and Lano. Biggie was working the board and Lano was playing second lead. The song was actually pretty good and had the makings of a hit, if only the sound could get more thick and bluesy. Try a little bend on that G, Leif advised. Lano tried, but couldn't quite get that fat crunchy sound he needed. His Mo's right just wasn't doing it. What if I played your guitar, Lano asked. His eyes took on a dreamy haze. 
It's the most beautiful guitar I've ever seen. He reached for it. Leif smiled and shook his head, taking a step back. Nobody plays Renegade Red but me. Why don't I try yours? The subpar guitarist tamped down his obvious disappointment, then shrugged and said, no sweat off my sack, knock yourself out. And that's exactly what happened. Just a few chords into the solo, the most right took on a power surge and the electrified string zapped Lake with such force he was knocked out. The last thing he saw before going unconscious was Lano reaching for Renegade Red. When Leif came to, the floor was warped and the walls were wiggling. Feedback was screeching from the speakers and the lights were flickering. The rows of framed gold and platinum records flashed like shining strobes and the smell of saturated tobacco, pot and stale beer made him want to hurl. What the hell happened? He mumbled, crawling into a sitting position. Lano's disembodied head perched at the top of a subwoofer box and dripping blood didn't reply. Includes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B O O K S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time. <laughs>